Welcome to the Leadership Drip, coffee and conversations for leaders leading the next generation. We're excited to welcome another incredible guest to our table, but before we do, could you do us a favor and hit the subscribe button? And while you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. That helps these conversations reach other great leaders. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to join us at the table for another great episode of the Leadership Drip. Jeff, welcome back, man. We're recording another show. Yes, we are. This seems to be what we do. This, I'm really excited about this show for Tell a couple me why. reasons. Tell right. me why. So first of all, uh, our guest today is 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 a dad of a college student here at Lee University, which is really wow, cool, right? That's so awesome. That's pretty cool. But also, uh, he has a great accent. We've talked about this in, in a ep- couple episodes well, we, ago. We, we let in with we, the teaser we episode teased that we, we thought we'd get him. We let out a mate. Right? <laughs> you let out a mate. You let out a mate. No, but uh, man, we're so excited to have uh, Pastor John Tyson. He is an author and a pastor and a church planner in Manhattan and right there in New York City. Uh, Originally from Adelaide, Australia, most recently authored the book, The Intentional Father, A Practical Guide to Raising Sons of Courage and Character. John, man, we are so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the Leadership Drip. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be talking with you guys. So it's a real joy. This is you are the second Aussie we've had on the yes. show, so we have to confess that you're not our first Aussie. We had the great Alex Seely on the show uh, two I, years ago, two probably. Years ago, yeah, two you know, Alex, I've known Alex for thirty years. Gosh, close to that. She was my small group leader when I became wow. a Christian. Wow. And her so husband cool. Henry was one of my best mates growing up. I used to go surfing with him every weekend. That's so crazy. So it's, I uh, can't believe they're in America. It's just so wild. All from the same youth group. That's right, a yeah. story. What God did in that youth group. But, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, yeah. sort of this takeover of the Aussies, right. And, in, in, in American evangelism. But I, I, I love the the conversation because we've had Henry and the Blonging Co here. They've led right. worship. We've had Alex on the, on the podcast itself. Which we got to get her right. at least. She's fantastic. She's fantastic. She, can, she can preach it down. And there is a third Aussie that we are trying to track down and we're just going to say it. We're going to name it. We're, we're going to name it and claim it. <laughs> we're not that kind of brand. Come on. No, no. <laughs> but auntie Christine Kane, we're, yes. we're, we want auntie Christine Kane on the podcast. So we're, she we're is a beast. She's a beast. Yeah. She is a beast. So anyway, all that to say, so uh, yeah so john how does a guy from adelaide australia get to new york city you know so it, it is interesting those folks that you mentioned i became a christian uh in a pentecostal youth revival assemblies of god on the weekend i turned 17 started going to this youth group because i was dating a girl that said if you want to date me you've got to come to church and honestly I, i'd never encountered anything like it these were the most passionate young people I'd ever met. They were getting up at 4 a.m. to pray for revival. Wow. Massive heart for God. Huge outreach. This youth group at the time was maybe between 100 and 150 kids. It wasn't massive. But the hand of God was on it. There's no other way to explain it. I mean, there's probably 40-plus people in full-time ministry from that youth group wow. in that season around the world. It's just wild. So I became a Christian. I went to an event that um, Hillsong were hosting called Wonderfest mm-hmm. in Sydney. And while I was there, I went praying in a, in a parking lot uh, out in the field, actually, after this, uh, during this concert and had like a New Testament sort of vision. I felt called to the US. I felt God say to me, I want you to serve me in America. I dropped out of high school when I was 16 to do an apprenticeship as a butcher in a meat factory. And I just prayed for these three years. Lord, if this is your will, open a door. When I was 20, I got a phone call at work. 
my dad said, hey, you've got a, a full scholarship to study theology in America at Tocoa Falls College. So that's where I came, not far from you guys. Met my wife there, been married 23 years, heard about church planting and starting new congregations. I was pretty entrepreneurial. And when I realized you could be rewarded rather than punished, and it was a job description, not a demotion to start things perpetually, I was like, that's it for me. <laughs> Came up to New York after 9-11 in 2001, fell in love with it, moved there in 05, been there for the last 16 years planting churches. So yeah, a deep sense. So I'll say this because you guys um, are talking with students. At that age, my sincere prayers between 18 and 21 are still being answered by God two decades later. Wow. Pray with all of your heart, sow into your own future sincerely through prayer. Because some of that stuff that I meant but had no power to make happen, no idea if it was even possible, God's doing that stuff today in my 40s. So that age that you guys are stewarding, I love that age. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable, actually. Okay, two things. Number one, I think I just came up with the coolest name ever for a pastor. John the Butcher Tyson, right? I mean, <laughs> bro, what a story, man. You like, know, you're a butcher the, like a New York yeah. fighter is what like, he sounds like. And he's in Manhattan. He's like John the Butcher Tyson. It's like, anyway, so that's that's how my brain works, bro. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I like wow. it. Yes. But on a on a different note, this generation right here, and, and, and we talk about this a little bit, there, there's a lot of noise on college campuses about sort of the decline and the decay and you know, the secularism and all those kinds of things. And again, I can't speak for anyone else's college campus, but man, I can tell you for a fact, I sense the same kind of movement and outpouring and revival happening on Lee's campus, kind of like what you're describing. It's just this organic, just hungry, like thirst for God. And it's just, it's manifesting itself in so many different pockets. If I had the time to tell you the number of stories of people who have been in my office in the last two weeks, talking about mm-hmm. God covering the wells of revival in this community. And it's just been such a joy to kind of uh, sort of partner with God in that, in that, you know, that opportunity to reach this generation for him. Mm-hmm. And it's so cool because I think what you're saying is, you know, these students who came out of that movement, you know, these, these leaders that were born out of that movement, we don't know where they're going to come from. I mean, I think that's the yeah. cool thing about God. And so it's, it's really exciting to be a part of this generation. And John, I'm super selfish. I'm just going to admit right up front. I have you on the show because you're a church planter and that's the process I'm in right now. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. we have planted okay. a church here with the Assemblies of God here in Cleveland, Tennessee. Uh, we're three What's the name of your church? It's called the Collectives Church. So it's, we're three weeks old. Okay. We just okay. got started. So as, as sort of the entrepreneurial, st- always starting something kind of guy mm-hmm. and you started churches and I'm sure other things. What have been some of the greatest lessons you've learned from that, especially around leadership? The greatest lessons learned in church planting. Gosh, what a question. It depends on the, so it depends on the stage of the church plant. Okay. So So, I'm three weeks in. So what do you have for me? (laughs) You know, the great challenge in the first year is you're so happy to have anyone in the room. You make a thousand small compromises off your own convictions and your vision, mm-hmm. not ethical ones, not biblical ones, but just ones that are true to what you're supposed to be about. Yeah. And so, you know, older folks show up with resources and they're like, Hey, does your church care about? And you're like, we certainly plan to, 
We certainly plan <laughs> to care about that. Younger folks come, you know, so to me, it's like you got to have total clarity and conviction on what it is that God has called you to be able to do. I think the biggest mistake church planters make is prayerlessness. Most church planters are prayerless, not out of desire. You'll never meet someone who's like, oh, no, I don't think church's uh, prayer is uh, unimportant. But their lives will say by their busyness and neglect of prayer, prayer is unimportant. Mm. So I, I mean, I was like a wild man when we first launched. I was, I, I didn't have a church to start with. It, it like it was an idea that didn't exist. I just spent honestly almost all day praying, walking around, listening, right. trying to meet people like Paul did with Lydia in the Book of Acts. That was, that has launched much of our foundation. The other thing I would say is, um, you know, get the pressure off your back. Get the pressure off your back. There's so much pressure on new church plants. You know, maybe you've got internal pressure as a man. I've got to make this. I'm, I'm assuming you're married. I see that ring there. I'm married. Maybe you've got kids. This is like, it's got to work. And then, you know, you've probably got some measure of funding from other churches and then all of that. There can be so much pressure to manufacture results. And, and the yeah. Bible says God makes things grow. And, you know, I think you're better off putting, putting your heart into becoming the kind of person God can trust through your inner life and um, not worrying about all the external results. doesn't say that metrics don't matter. You, you obviously measure what matters, but just getting that psychic pressure off that to me, and you get that through, you know, enjoying your life, enjoying the season, taking time to rest, finding out what, you know, sort of those rhythms of replenishment, really leaning into it. Yeah. I mean, that's like, oh gosh, I could, there's probably a thousand things, but those are the big ones I felt. Will I be? A, will this church be launched in prayer or pragmatism? Big question. Will I let this this pressure to conform my expectations um, crush me? And will I compromise on my leadership because I need people and here are some people and I'll do whatever it takes to get them to stay? Yeah. Mm. And we feel like my wife and I feel like we're planting a church in the most backwards way. Like we we didn't do it the big. Like a lot of people coach you, you want to have a hundred plus or whatever the the threshold is to create sort of a, a tipping point. We didn't do that. And we're trying to build it on young adults and releasing young adults. Our stage most Sundays, we meet Sunday nights, is probably 25 or younger. I'm like the oldest guy that shows up. Like, and so that's our aim. And so I feel like every like everybody said like that what they've said, we're doing the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> like we're, so so like and what's funny today on my whiteboard in my office, I wrote down how do we build more prayer into our church? Because I don't want that to be like I've felt busy and I know busy comes with the territory, but I don't want it to be at the cost of not praying enough. Yeah. Yeah. I I am such a big believer in prayer because prayer is how you access God. Right. And I love God. And so to me, I don't want to just know about God. I don't want to do things for God. I want to enjoy God. And that's the great motivator. And, you know, I mean, Satan will do, if I was to say, where is, so anytime you plant a church, there's obviously new levels of spiritual warfare. You're trying mm -hmm. to push and advance the kingdom. Where is the greatest warfare? It's not going to be for you to steal money or get a porn addiction or to scream at your team. It's going to be prayerlessness. Yeah. Because like a, a really busy, burned out person is no threat. Yeah. It's no threat to the enemy. He doesn't need to right. do anything. He's already got you. But when you really seek God, so the resistance is always against seeking God. Mm -hmm. And to me, I always tell people, you got to have massive prayer covering. You have to just resolve in your heart. I will be a man of prayer. 
And I still think, like I said earlier, those early days of prayer, um, you're sowing into the future. Right. You know, and like, but what, where do you want to be in a year? Pray into it now. I mean, bend your schedule, put prayer in your couch, put prayer in your calendar first and just put everything around it. And the gift, you know, you know, this you're in charge, mate. Yeah. You're, you're in charge. You get to run your schedule. It's the greatest privilege of all time. Much of what happens can be bent around your schedule at this stage. And so put yeah. the big rocks in first and then see what happens. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to ask maybe a similar question just because of the movement that you came out of with Hillsong and coming out of Australia. And and again, the numerous sort of people and leaders and pastors and, uh, you know, dynamic, you know, kingdom builders that come out of that whole movement. So I really, again, I know we mentioned it just a few seconds ago, but I believe that God is really doing something supernatural and outpouring a revival here on our campus. And it, mm-hmm. again, it's it's not public. It's not like it's national news or something like that, but I'm so very sensitive to it in the spirit that I want to steward it. Well, I don't want to control it or bottle it or, or whatever. So from your perspective, coming out of that movement, what were some of those key things that you learned or you saw and how to steward a, an outpouring or a movement or a revival that's beginning to take shape? Well, it's, I mean, I want to clarify. I never came from Hillsong. I came from a church called Planet Planet Shakers. Planet yeah, we know right, we yes, know yes, Planet Shakers. Yes. We've had them here as well. Yes. Oh, really? So the guy who started that's the guy that led me to Christ, Russell Evans. I am okay. eternally grateful. He changed my life, man. Called out my destiny through a prophetic word. I had a one Corinthians fourteen experience. Secrets of my heart were revealed. Fell on my face. Surely God is in this place. So I'm so grateful for them. Um, I mean, I've, I've given much of my life studying the history of revivals. Before Haley came to college, we, our, our family did a 17-location revival tour around the world. So, you know, where the, many of the greatest outpourings happened, our family went and prayed there just with a vision to see God do it today. So, I mean, I, I would say this, revivals are never pure. There's always an element of both satanic opposition and the flesh that gets mm. in there. Mm. And... So as a result of that, people can say, well, we've got to get the flesh out. You'll never get the flesh out. It's never pure. It's always an element of mixture in the midst of it. So to me, I think it's it's having, as long as the Bible is really being preached and you're inside the bounds of orthodoxy, mm-hmm. you have to you have to tolerate things that don't fit your paradigm. You know, mm-hmm. so to me, it's just amazing. In the Old Testament, if you challenge God, the fire of God came out of heaven and devoured you. In the New Testament says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. And part of the way you do that is by treating prophecy with contempt. And so to me, a huge part of it is like welcoming the work of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, yeah. you're welcome. Um, you know, and, and fueling it by prayer. All revival, they don't just start with prayer. They're fueled by it. And so if you need breakthrough into a particular resistant part of the campus, say there's like a, a department of students or something. And they're just like, you're seeing traction everywhere, but with there's these parts or kinds of students that are not, not responding. You got to go after them, prayer and fasting, you know, yeah. particularly pushing for them. I think, I, I think one thing I'm a little hesitant of the Welsh revival was called the, the media revival. Same thing happened with Billy Graham because all the conversions were put in the newspapers. And I think social media, if you hype it too quick, if you tell the Tories too, too quick, 
it can damage the seed. You know what I mean? It can hinder, it can hinder the full expression yeah. because it gets too much attention too quickly. I like how you said it like this quiet behind the scenes thing. Um, when God's ready with it, you won't be able to stop it and you won't need to promote it. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so any efforts to do that in advance to me, I, I think, yeah, I mean, you want to be faithful and bear witness. You don't want to hide it under a bushel, but a lot of times people, they just want to get momentum in the natural and that, that, that ain't it, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. As, absolutely. as a student of revival, John, then what are, what are the sort of the key markers of an actual revival? Like we see movements, we see kind of God show up in spaces for a season, but the, the revivals like the Welsh revival and then the Azusa street in different times, what are the markers of revival? Well, I mean, number one, there's like a, an awareness of God. God is there. You know, there's no, there's no conjecture. There's no theories. Your atheism doesn't work in a revival zone. Yeah. You know, you may reject God, but you won't, you struggle to deny him because his manifest presence is there. In the businessman's revival in New York, the, there was a tangible manifest zone of the glory of God over New York City where sailors coming into the harbor were coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit before they got to the island. It's like, what is God doing? Just like having glory hover over the sea. Yeah. You know, like it just was wild what ended up happening. So yeah, uh, an awareness of God, you know, um, if, if the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the spirit of God filling a human being, revival is the spirit of God filling a community or a region. It's just mm. God is undeniably there. Secondly, there's a massive awareness of sin, like straight up repentance. Spiritual formation leaders talk about, basically two kinds of sin. There's the, the large dramatic sins, then there's conscious sin, but below the line, you start talking about un, unconscious patterns of sin. And then below that sort of trust structures, what reform people call idols, idolatry. And what happens is we're normally pretty good in regular church at dealing with surface and severe sins. You know, we know we shouldn't do it. So we, we stop it. We address it. But there's junk in the heart that only the Holy Spirit can get yeah, to. And yeah. then that stuff comes out in revivals. Mm -hmm. Secret sin gets confessed. And um, like, you know, God really basically does a spiritual MRI through the human personality. And then people just confess that sin. Then there's obviously normally um, a great uh, turning of the lost. They're attracted back to the church. So you just, you see people really respond to the gospel with power. I just finished studying the Jesus movement and they would, you know, they would, they would sing, play one chord on the guitar and 200 kids would get saved. I mean, it was just in the air. Yeah. I had one of my friends was a, one of the early leaders in the Jesus movement. He ended up um, having problems within his marriage and sort of dropped out, dropped out of ministry. But he would just tell me these stories of just the, the power, the, the harvesting power of God in an atmosphere of revival. Uh, and I'd like church unity is not always a requirement, which I think is actually one of the, the misunderstandings. Jonathan Edwards revival, he got unity after the revival started, not before it started. So I don't think that's it though. Everybody points to it. And I'll say this controversy. There's never been a move of God that has not had massive opposition. Yes. If there's no controversy, it's not a move of God. Yeah. Cause it's shaking stuff up. You know, I mean, it's getting in and it's disrupting yeah. sort of religious systems more than secular systems. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's, I think it's wild. When Finney went to Rochester, I went up to Rochester and did like a Northeast revival tour. Finney preached 96 talks in six months at third, uh, yeah, third 
Presbyterian Church, um, Third Pres, and 100,000 people came to Christ in six months. Wow. 96 talks. And the presence of God was just, it was from the poorest to the wealthiest. And they said you could feel the restraining influence of the revival up to 40 years later in the criminal justice system. Crime was still restrained based on that fruit of 40 years earlier. I mean, just extraordinary. So, yeah, and ultimately my point is it leads to the transformation of society. There is like a visible, tangible change in the world around us. So we haven't really had um, a real revival, I think, since, since the Jesus movement. Brownsville, Toronto, I don't know if they were revivals. They were definitely moves of God, but I think yeah. that's different than that. I mean, they called the Toronto the blessing, um, but I'm after it, man. I mean, that's what I'm, I mean, I signed up for that. That's what we're doing in New York. We've got a prayer room. We spend, spend hours every day praying for God to move and really committed to it. So my friend, David Kinnaman, who's the president of Barna, he says, mm-hmm. bar a move of God, and radical youth discipleship, we have reached a point of statistical irreversible decline in the American church, Wow! which means if we don't seek God in radically different ways and disciple young people differently, all you and I will do with our time is manage the decline of the American church. And honestly, who wants to do that? Yeah. Not me. Not me. So, so in reference to that radical discipleship, John, and unpack that, kind of comment for us because we're big discipleship guys. Like we love discipleship. We love mentoring. We love investing the the life on life. What's Kinnaman mean by radical discipleship? Well, he would call them resilient disciples and they're disciples who can thrive in secularism in essence. So the faith for exiles conversation, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's which, is it. The so basis, which is the basis of my dissertation. Basis of my master's yeah. thesis. We've read it. We've highlighted it. We yeah. stickered it like backwards and forwards. You we got love that book. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so the difference is, it's one thing. It's one thing to acknowledge it. It's another thing to change your church structures to facilitate it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's the like. It's easy in the mind. It's good in the attitude. It's harder in the hands. It's almost impossible to build a group dynamic around it. Yeah. And so, to me, I think there's a lot of work that needs to go into that shape. And again, you know, you guys have an incredible opportunity because. You've got four years uh, with a lot of these students and it's sort of like a captive audience. I mean, they, they have to show up to their classes. You, you, I, was, I couldn't talk to Haley last week because there was uh, some sort of spiritual emphasis week or something. Convocation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. she's like, yeah, we've, we've got people coming in and, we're, and it's like, man, what an opportunity. You guys are primed to do this. Yeah. You guys are in just fertile soil for this. So I'm excited to see what God does with you. Same here. And it is exciting. And, uh, you know, I think uh, Rick, my, my former pastor at Saddleback in, in California, he would always tell us, um, you know, either we're going to go the way of Europe or we're going to usher in this third grade awakening. Right. So, and I believe Gen Z is the key to this third grade awakening. I don't think it's going to come from the boomers. I don't even think it's going to come from, from my generation. I think it is going to come through this, uh, maybe what Addison Bevere calls the secular saint, right? I mean, there, there's all kinds of language that's being framed around it. What Kinnaman, Matlock say in Faith for Exiles, this resiliency. So, but it doesn't look the same as it did for maybe uh, other revivals or other awakenings, right? This, uh, this is an awakening where we are sending uh, Jesus followers into the marketplace to be transformative, not in the local church, but in, but in their industries, in their 
what Rebecca called the other night, their birthrights and their burdens, right? The collision, that's the call calling, right? So, um, so that's how do you, language. she's so right? good. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> so how do you see this? Uh, if, if we're going to experience this great awakening, how do you see this manifesting itself uh, with Gen Z in, in this secular saint sort of framework? And what impact do you think that's going to have on the local church if the awakening isn't happening in the local church? That's a good question. So I think it's, look, it's got to start with Christians. It's got to start with the people of God. Um, I don't think it will start with mission outside the church. If we're talking about revival, there's a difference between obviously missiology and revival. Um, I, I, one thing I fully agree with is like, I think, I, I think it's Gen Z. It's Gen Z and, and I don't know if they're calling them like alpha gen or whatever. That's what I heard, but it's like, it's, it's younger. Um, yeah. What will it look like? Gosh, it's, it, it's going to be a digital revival of staggering unprecedented means that makes what Luther did with the, with the press seem like child's play. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you look at some of these, uh, you know, I'm not like I'm on Instagram because it's like a natural medium for me. Facebook's doesn't work. It's like, it's too cluttery. Instagram works. TikTok, uh, I'm not into it, but I tell you what, I wish I was because the future of evangelism will probably happen on TikTok. Some of these evangelism, uh, you know, digital evangelists like that. Okay. So I'll tell you a story. We had a girl come to our church in New York city who became a Christian watching a video on TikTok, Googled local churches, mm -hmm. lived near us, showed up on a Sunday and said, do you have anything that can help me follow Jesus? So, I mean, she's, and she's like cranking. So that happened because someone on the internet got to her. We didn't get to her. Yeah. Someone reached her in her medium. So I think it's going to be massive, massive digital war. I just think there's so mm. much propaganda out there. I think truth's going to come through like a wrecking ball. Um, I think it'll be distributed and international. I don't think it's going to be localized in, in ways that others have. I think there's just going to be all these decentralized pockets of people who catch it and build local things. Yeah. And I think that honestly could be a little bit of a threat to local churches who are not as open or who don't realize the stage of history that, uh, that we live in. And I think there will be, um, I think there will be a, like a great move of like deep, deep radical discipleship. Mm. These, the, you know, these, these young folks are exposed to everything, you know, it's, it's pornification, it's, violence as every other religion. I think when they get Jesus and they really understand the, the gospel of the kingdom, not just the gospel of salvation, mm -hmm. I think that they're going to live in staggering ways. So I'm, I mean, I couldn't be more grateful. It's, seeing secularism destroy millennials has been painful to watch. Yeah. yeah. But um, I'll tell you one thing uh, Tim Keller said to me years ago. He said, this is before he retired. He said, John, I am both, saddened for you and jealous for you i said what do you mean he said i think i think we've got a few years where it's just going to get worse and worse and worse there will be very dark days but if we can be faithful and have a robust witness i think all we're going to have to do is open our open our arms and the world will come running to us because they're going to see what like romans one wrath looks like in slow motion yeah and they're going to want the hope of the gospel and I think it'll get so dark that the light will be more compelling than ever. And we just need to be there for the harvest. And so he's like, you know, I think you're going to have harder times in New York than I've had pastoring. And I think you're going to see 
beautiful things that we didn't get to see in our mm-hmm. time here. I think that's probably true. Yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Let's, let's circle back to one thing you, you mentioned sort of the, the youth group at planet shakers and the number of people that came out of that. Uh, we talked to somebody who's at your best friend's church, uh, down in church of the city, down in Franklin. We were just yes, talking to yes. Jonathan Pitts, but Darren Whitehead okay, gotcha. is a good, yes. Yes. Darren Whitehead's a pastor down there. Um, with Chris Kane, the Sealies. Um, there's just a huge influx of Australians who have had impact on the American church. Why is that? Well, I mean, you'd have to ask God that. I mean, as to what he's like actually doing. I can give you a few. It's the accent as well. We love the accent. It's the accent. I'll give you a few thoughts. Um, It's not just Australians in general who are coming to America. It's a particular kind of Australian. Okay. A particular kind of Australian that is working in America. And that is the, so Australia has a very cynical culture. And it has a culture that tends to, it's, it's definitely changed in recent years, but traditionally has not valued gifts and accomplishments. It has, you know, like I would say Americans worship their heroes. Australians beat the crap out of them. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're always trying to tear them down, humanize them. You think you're better than me? You know, there's like a little bit more of a class consciousness. I mean, the term mate is a term derived from Australian convicts who were chained to, chained to each other in the outback. Okay, so it's not a super classy origin story. <laughs> so, but there's a, there's a kind of Australian that has a distinct personality profile and from traditionally the same theological circles that loves seeing God do great things, cares about... Um, faith, not just faithfulness, a capacity to believe God for what's next and has the very, very strong can do spirit. So a very, very strong sense of like, let's just have a go, believe God for great things. Let's see if he does anything. So very, very sort of like resilient, low key personality, but at the same time with a lot of drive Mm. and it's all those people that are doing well, you won't find as much a very, very conservative theological anglican really prospering in australia it's sorry in the u.s it's just a i mean there's a couple of them but it's it's like it's the pentecostal faith-filled um accomplishment oriented personality which isn't really celebrated in the australian church as much that have tended to do well over here in new york like the paul andrew he's from hillsong josh kelsey he's from c3 church but we're all the same kind of person yeah. We're right, all right. the same kind of person. Right. Nuance, but very, very similar. Very cool. Now, you, you said something at um, the Q conference. There was a video of it on Instagram, and I tried to go back and find it about things being birthed in prayer in Australia, and that's part of the impact that's happening here in the United States. Do you remember that comment? I do not know. Gosh, I wish I could find the video. I searched Q. It must have been in the stories. I searched the Q ideas. You said it at this last Q ideas, but essentially I think the, the, the statement was what we're seeing from this type of Australian in having impact in the United States in the American church was things that were being birthed out of prayer, uh, hours of prayer in Australia that you would spend two and three hours a day. Oh, yeah, I, think, I think I'm just talking about my youth group. I'm talking about yeah. like, People would say to me, like, what won your heart when you were a kid? Like, what, what was the atmosphere? We, one yeah. of the things we don't talk about, we don't talk about um, the conditions that facilitate things. 
So we talk about culture a lot, but like, like what are the conditions? So example right now, we're having tons of wildfires. We're seeing unprecedented flooding and everybody talks about the event. The event is not the thing. The conditions are the thing. The conditions make the events possible. So um, a lot of people try and do events that build culture rather than working on the conditions that create the right events. Mm. The conditions of that student ministry were staggering, massive youth empowerment. Mm. So the first time I ever preached there, I, I got to preach there, changed my life. Um, a, a culture of expectation. God is here. God's not just real. He's here. And they had mastered the response time. They had mastered the ability to bring you into the presence of God. Um, they had a culture of faith. They, they literally believed that God could and God would. Therefore, the Bible says God rewards those who diligently seek him. They just had a culture of diligence. It was not legalism. It was delight. It was hunger. And that diligence towards God, that Godward orientation, just yielded massive stories. And it was like a virtuous cycle. You would seek God and he'd answer miraculously. And then that would want create hunger to see him do more. And mm. just, it was expectation. It was empowerment. It was a releasing of destiny. You know what I mean? Like they literally said, I mean, I, I was so clear to that. John, God's hands on your life. He wants to use you to reach people in this generation. That thought had never occurred to me in my mm. life. And it was like somebody basically woke me up from a spiritual slumber. So, you know, those, and there's like a few other dynamics, but those sorts of dynamics create environments where people's hearts come alive. They're given opportunity. They grow in, they have an awareness of their gifts. They grow in competence. They get good at what they do. And then they're on their way to seeing their future sort of happen. So it was amazing. Yeah, that's cool. I, lo I love that concept of a virtuous cycle because there are other cycles that we get stuck in, especially in, in the church world, right? Where we get in stuck yeah. in these almost uh, in, encounter cycles, maybe is what I want to call them, where mm -hmm. we, we value the encounter so much that that becomes the thing. And the encounter is not the thing. It's what happens after the encounter, the transformation, the discipleship, the relational depth that we gain from Christ because of the encounter rather than seeking the encounter itself. Does that make sense? So it's, yeah, like, totally. it's like, yes. I mean, most formation, I mean, it happens in two ways. It's, it's breakthrough and process, right? There's these big catalytic events that are, that are life-changing, but then you're going to live that stuff out every day. You right. know, the book of acts is 40 years long. We read it like it happened in two years. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> it's exactly those, right. those yeah. miracles were stretched out. There's a lot of normal life between the big miracles. Yeah. So yeah, you can have a, you can have a culture. Again, this is why I, I always want to say the goal of prayer is God himself. So yeah. I would go on and leave the assemblies of God and gosh, move through like a MacArthur Bible teaching season, the contemplative season, church history season, like, because I just wanted different ways to access God. When you're in love, you do whatever it takes to get to the person. And I wasn't, um, restricted to like a tongue speaking hyped up room. I still love that. And honestly, it's my default mode. Mm -hmm. You put me in a room with hundreds of people, one in like, that's my native environment. So, yeah. So to me, you, you're not chasing the experience. You're chasing the person. And sometimes the experience is very, very subtle. It's very, very deep. It's very mm -hmm. quiet. Other times it's dramatic. So to me, get the emphasis on the person, however you can find him in whatever tradition, not just trying to recreate 
a certain frenzied moment, you know? Yeah. Well, let's talk, let's shift gears just a little bit because you're obviously uh, in, in Manhattan, you're in New York city. You're, I can see the reflection in your window back there, or it's out of your window, which, whichever one it is. Uh, but it's absolutely gorgeous, right? We love that. We love the city. So you're in New York. It's obviously been a very difficult season uh, to pastor a church in New York city, not only culturally speaking, but just with the pandemic and all of the restrictions. Mm-hmm. And so from a leadership perspective, just kind of talk us through a little bit how you guys have approached the season and uh, maybe some of the things that you've learned along the way about, about the mechanisms and the methods you thought were important that now are not. I mean, mm-hmm. kind of talk us through that whole process a little bit. Well, um, yeah, it certainly was very difficult. Um, my whole family got COVID at the start of the pandemic. So, you know, my wife was horrifically ill for a month. I was ill for two weeks. My kids basically like had a headache and slept for 16 hours and woke up and they're fine. You yeah. Know? So, but it sort of set the tone. New York was, was basically humbled. Um, it was, it was very, it was dystopian, man. It was, I am legend. It was yeah, a yeah. level of psychic fear, a lot of trauma, a lot of tears, a lot of death, a lot of pain. Um, one of the things I did during the pandemic was I just reread all of um, Jim Collins stuff. Good to great, great by choice. I just read his canon again. And I actually came across um, a concept that like framed the whole of the pandemic's leadership for me. He tells a story. He's got this idea. I think it's in great by choice called the 20 mile March. And it's the story of uh, trying to get to the South pole. And it was a race between two different guys with very different personalities with very different methods. And one guy who was the favorite to get there and claim, uh, claim the, the title of discovering it. He had a fair weather approach, which is like when the weather was good, you would just go hard until you're exhausted. And then when the weather was bad, you'd sit in your tent for three or four days till it cleared. And so if it like fits and spurts, very sporadic, and the other gentleman had an approach called the 20 mile march where every day, whether it was raining or snowing, they just do 20 miles. And he built basically a rhythm. And it was like, it didn't matter what the weather did. They had a mission that day. It was 20 miles. So like the, the psychic consistency of just saying like, here's the task. We're going to do it no matter what, if it's sunny, great. If it's raining, whatever. And I, I thought a lot about that. What pe- Everybody was disrupted from their normal tasks, but I sort of sat down and I said, what's our task? Our task is in our church, it's like it's making missional disciples defined by three things, the presence of God, counterformation, living in the way of Jesus and being on sacrificial mission. Okay, none of that changes. We still have the same mission. What's our 20 mile task of discipleship? Mm-hmm. How do we just keep doing the same thing? So we basically built a consistent rhythm best we could of um, seeking God, making disciples and serving people. And we just banged that out, man. And we just did that faithfully and humbly with a vision to play the long game. So to me, I think determine your core task and stay with it and don't let the circumstances dictate your mission or reaction. Now uh, to, to put one little caveat, you have to respond. I mean, you cannot be tone deaf. There's a global pandemic. You have to lead in such a way that you recognize what's happening. But a lot of people just threw their mission out the window and were completely disoriented. And well, what do we do now? What do you know? And I was like, I just said, locked in and said, we're going to do the same thing differently. The 20 mile march is on. I think the other thing I would say, um, again, this is something I heard Keller say that that basically I, I 
I heard this at the start of the pandemic. It's staggering, staggering timing for me. He said after 9-11, he said, Christians are hardwired to respond in crisis. Like church is at its best when it's like, you know, holding its hands against the bleeding wounds of the world. I mean, like the Christians are born for this. But it's an adrenaline response and it's not sustainable. And so the things that you do in crisis, if you don't change, they will become your crisis. Mm-hmm. So you have to change the way you think about this. And so he said a lot of the folks who made it through the season after 9-11, 18 months later had burned out and they all left the city. And I'm seeing that right now. I'm just seeing like mass attrition with pastors and leaders. So he, he said, I, I basically was like, I'm not going to have an adrenaline response. I'm going to dial back my leadership. I'm going to identify my core tasks, which means I'll probably under lead for, for some people's liking. But the difference is I'll still be here in five years. And I can tell you that conscious strategy of like a measured response, um, tons of rest, tons of enjoyment. I, I, I don't know what's happening in my heart right now, but I may be the healthiest spiritually I've been in 20 years, man. I'm, a, I'm in a season of personal revival and I'm actually coming out. Our church has shrunk by half, which is frustrating. Hundreds of people have left the city. And I've just got more vision and faith in life than I feel like I've ever had. And I think a lot of that is because I thought about the rebuilding moment, not just the crisis moment. And I, I basically structured my energy to sort of come into effect when it was time to rebuild. And I sort of put my head down a bit through the crisis. I think a lot of other folks just like didn't do that. I think they right. just got so caught up in the trauma, so triggered by everything. They've got nothing left now. And um so yeah, I don't, I don't, I certainly didn't do it perfectly. I certainly may not have even done it right, but I'm still here, ready to play the long game, and I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. I mean, you mentioned your church is down. I think everybody's church is down. But what has mm-hmm. been the response then of this sort of long game thinking of those that have stayed with you in the church? Uh, some they- of them, I mean, I mean, the- some of them. I mean, I've been, I've been in New York for 16 years. There's yeah. not a lot of people who've been there that long, right? So I think people, I think this may be proved to them, hey, these guys really are playing the long game. So we had a lot of credibility, institutional credibility before that. People felt like our church was a, I think they sensed we were stable leaders. Yeah. You know, so we weren't the best leaders, but you know what? I think the Tysons are going to make it. So um, I think, yeah, I think it, it sort of built that reputation. And again, everybody's like placing bets post-pandemic. Where do we invest our time, money, energy, resources, attention? And, you know, is it worth putting into something that won't be here in a year because the pastor looks like he's, he's, he's not going to make it? I think it's given our people confidence to sort of like re-up for a rebuilding season. I think that's probably the biggest way it's netted out. I think it's also important. Um, I mean, I'm, I've, I've never been more aware of this. It's just jarring to me. We have so many new people in our church. Mm. who moved to New York during the pandemic and towards whatever season this is. And they're showing up loving New York more than ever. It's finally cheap enough where they can get to it. And they need a leader who can match their vision and energy for the city so that that energy is not dissipated and wasted. If that early stage vision is not converted towards the church and the kingdom of God, it will be redeployed into the city into other means. And so I'm trying to sort of, I think, win, win the vision and um, 
commitment game with the folks who have moved to the city recently by showing him you, you couldn't be here at a better time. Your timing is perfect. Yeah. yeah, You're right on time. Let's go. God's put us here to rebuild this thing. So I'm really happy with how it's going. And I'm just thrilled at the kinds of people who are showing up these days. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, hey, uh, we definitely want to get to a different uh, topic altogether, kind of. Um, like I said, we just had Jonathan Pitts on the show and uh, mm-hmm. he was talking about his four daughters. And so yep. now we're on the show with you and you just wrote a book recently and released it, The Intentional Father, A Practical Guide to Raise Sons of Courage and Character. So uh, tell us about the book, man. And I'm excited to read it when I get it, when I actually get a chance to, but uh, really looking forward to it. So talk to us about the book. Well, I mean, I, I've got uh, the first question people ask is like, dude, you have something for daughters coming out? It's like, yeah, man, I took Haley through this thing called 50 Pieces of My Heart. 50 key deposits all fathers need to make in their daughter's lives before they leave home. So I did that with Haley. We finished yeah. it with a two week trip to Iceland before I dropped her off at Lee. So I'm working on that. I only say that because I don't know where this will be posted, but immediately you'll get comments. I'm like, well, where's the thing for girls? So just like, <laughs> um, no, I mean, I just felt like, like all, all here's the background, all societies that have existed except ours have had conscious pathways of formation to take adolescent energy and form it, shape it towards healthy adult, adulthood and participation in society. We're the only society that has lost that path. Mm. And the consequences that are staggering, two articles that came out in the past week, one in the Wall Street Journal talking about the crisis of boys dropping out of college because they don't see a future, and another one uh, that came out today, I, I read this morning, just talking about how we're building a world that young men don't fit in anymore. It's just right. like we're literally losing a generation. Well, I mean, my son's 21 now. Um, I didn't want that to happen to my son. That was it, man. It was a move of love. I was like, I've got to get this kid from, I've got to get this kid into adulthood through very complex situations. And I, I want to partner with a local church. I want to partner with a youth group. I want to partner with other dads and mentors, but I have to level up and own this process myself. Mm. Nate will have many mentors, but he'll only have one father. And there's a role I have to play and get right. So um, yeah, I basically read sort of the canon on men's ministry and formation and realized a very common theme. Most books on men's ministry were written by broken men who wish their dad would do better. And I was like, where's the book where like the dad got it like kind of right and he can tell you how to do it. And I realized there's like, honestly, almost no books like that. There's a couple. And then the ones that, that were there were not comprehensive enough. It was like, you know, have the sex talk and do a camping trip and do a <laughs> bless your son. And, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but what about every other day for the next six years between that? Yeah. So I, I, I tried to basically read the best stuff, integrate it, fill in the missing pieces and put it in a logical sequential, almost like a degree into adulthood. You guys have freshmen, you have orientation, you have foundational courses, yeah. you have specialization, you have practicums, you have graduation, you have job placement. Why don't we do that for our children in their spiritual formation? So I basically designed that, took my son through it and then wrote about it. Upon request, you know, people were like, dude, you got to put this down. I was ready to move on and, you know, talk, talk about whatever I'm working on now. But I feel like there was such a need there. And the response to it was visceral, visceral feedback. So, yeah, so that's the story of the book. So it's basically, um, it takes men, you know, so there's six stages historically, you know, it was the removal of childhood. A young man was removed from the childhood dynamic, the conditions of childhood. 
Uh, he went through some symbolizing ritual saying that that season was over and he was entering into liminal space. Went through a process of formation around three areas, the religion of the community, the story of the community, roles needed to function in the community. He was sent on an ordeal to test whether or not he'd actually learned those lessons in real life. For Aboriginal uh, young men in Australia, sometimes up to six months in the outback where there's no food or water and everything you see kills you. You know, I mean, so like real, real testing, real testing to produce courage so mm. that you actually can lift these things out. Recognition by the community of men that you have passed the ordeal and then celebration and reintegration into society to play your role and continue the tradition. And I was like, we don't name, name how that happens in, in American culture. It doesn't name how that happens in the church. It doesn't. And look at the consequence record rates. What we've got, because we haven't designed this, they did research at New York university. They found helicopter parenting began around the year 1990. That's when they, they like something shifted in conscious parenting within one generation, depression rates rose by 80 to 90%. Wow. In one generation, because parents were no longer forming their kids, they were doing everything for them and it produced profound anxiety. So yeah, man, I'm trying to push back on that. And my goal is to normalize a pathway of male formation in the evangelical church. That is my stated goal. So it's lofty, yeah, but I think we live in an urgent hour and I think we have an unprecedented opportunity. Kids are raking yeah. for this, you know, yeah, mentors to guide them through the, the wild energies of, of young adulthood. So, I mean, obviously being on, I read the Wall Street Journal that you just mentioned. I yes, yes. And we've been dealing with a lot of those metrics. We yeah. have actually in the academic setting, obviously committees who are dedicated to the sole conversation of male student engagement, male student mm. enrollment, those kinds of things, because we're aware, obviously, of the crisis level uh, mm. sort of mm. magnitude that that is. Yeah. Also, the, the mental health reality that nearly 40% of all incoming freshmen have a diagnosable mental health illness, right? So all these... all these. Um, can, can we just pause for one sec? Yeah. What kind of statistic is that? What right? are we doing with a generation yeah. of kids right. where half of them are coming in with diagnosable mental issues? What are we doing? <laughs> it's in, I know. It's, it's yeah. wild. Yeah. And so, so I think, you know, part of this whole conversation is how are we training, discipling and leading them into a, a fruitful relationship with Christ? Why? Because when they graduate, those same 40% of students are now entering church leadership. They're now entering business leadership. They're now entering, you know, secular marketplace in ministry. Uh, it's not that the, the mental health diagnosis has gone away, it may in some circumstances, but the reality is this is sort of the, the, um, the payment or the, or the, the outcomes of what we have done in terms of this mm. helicopter parenting and all these other cultural dynamics that have been at play. So I think a book like this, and I, I'm, you know, I'm a dad of two sons myself, but uh, I mean, I wish I would have had this when my, when my boys yeah. were young, I mean, mine are 23 and 21 right now. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, these kinds of conversations are not happening enough. They're not happening mm. broad enough, big enough, fast enough. And so this, uh, this need to, this need to create these kinds of conversations are not mm. natural because I think a lot of our leaders are, first of all, unaware to uneducated, not in the, not in the academic sense, but they don't, yeah. they don't put in the energy and the time to invest in a, in this type of conversation typically. Right. 
So how do we begin to change that narrative across the board? At what point do we say, okay, I not only see the problem, but now I need to begin to address and to fix and to help stymie the problem from growing any further. I mean, where, where are we at? Well, I think it's, it's probably, I mean, you've got to raise the alarm. Number one. I mean, the number one thing people tell me is like, calm down. And my response to that is normally like, you, you're asleep. Yeah. You're asleep. Yes. You, you know, like you, yeah. you're in a place of incredible privilege and luxury because things happen to be going well for you. Like I'm telling you, we're in the middle of an epidemic. And so I'm not, I, I say that out of love, not out of fear. Right. It's like, gosh, we have to take radical action. The good news is you can change one generation. You can change the future. You know, yes. mm-hmm. I mean, you can do things. I mean, you look at, you know, there's all these other areas sociologically that have shifted in 10 years that are staggering. So to me, it's a conversation that needs to happen in the church about the, the church's responsibility. It's probably a reframing of student ministry, what exactly we're trying to do here. Um, it's helping and equipping parents. Most parents feel overwhelmed. They love their kids. They want to get it right, but they didn't have this happen for them. And so I think we need to have a lot of mercy for parents um, and, and we need to give them practical tools. So, you know, I think some triangulation between the home campus ministries, student ministries coming together to form an ecosystem where this is normalized, shared language, um, you know, shared, shared pathways, those sorts of things are huge. The thing I've done about it is like written this book and I'm trying to promote it everywhere. You know, I'm trying to like make this normalized. We probably need better storytelling of getting it right. There's so many horror stories Yes, that people just think there's no alternative. And I think we need some good storytelling, which I'm sort of working on, um, on like folks who got it right and why it's more doable than you think and why you can get this right. You know, stories of empowerment as well. Yeah. Yeah. John, is is the process and pathway in the book translatable into a mentoring relationship? I know you did. This is a dad and sons kind of conversation and we need good dads, but not every son has a good dad. So is this a translatable conversation? 100 mentor or a pastor? Um, it's probably too intense for a pastor. Uh, definitely a mentor. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're basically and, and, and male formation, I think, happens best in a community of men it's the council of dads it's the tribe it's the you know it's the mentors it's all of those things coming together so i believe there is a a sacred role um that every dad that nobody can replace a father's presence in a person's life um and so dads have to get it right so i'm not saying that like yeah i i want to be careful it's fundamental that a dad takes responsibility if he has a kid and he shouldn't expect the youth pastor or other mentors right. to do it for him. Right. If somebody is, does not have a dad, a group of mentors can do an extraordinary job of filling that gap and helping them along the way. And, you know, there's so many stories of like, um, yeah, little tribes of dads sort of like coming together and rallying a little community. I think this happens best in a cohort where there's one-on-one time, but then you've got a little crew that you're rolling with. It makes it more fun. Um, also sort of alleviates the psychic pressure of the dad having to be this Jedi and sort of come up with it all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's listen, it's an important conversation as you've got two, I've got three in my house. Um, It is a valuable, like I'm about halfway through and you've wrecked me on every chapter. Like every time I'm like, it's a gut punch (laughs) of things that like either I feel or I go, Hey, that's, that's incredibly practical. I need to implement that. Um, so I'm working through it and, and trying to figure out how to implement it into the, I have a 20, 
20 year old, a 17 year old and one that's 13. So I, I feel like I got time on one side and ran out of time on the other side. So yeah. Um, never too late mate never too late but that 13 i mean you're right on track right there that's the yeah. that's the fillet of ages <laughs> oh there there goes the butcher oh, speak yeah, yeah man, John, the butcher to, Tyson, full, circle, that's full circle that's a professional <laughs> communicator there yes that's awesome hey man we have uh we're, we're really out of time and, and number one i'm I wish we had four hours on this podcast for you, but the cool thing is I get to see you again. I get to see you around campus. So hopefully at some point we can keep these conversations going. Uh, but I we have one that. last question and it's yeah. a question that we ask everybody on the show. And uh, we would like to know what is one thing you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom. Um, you have to take responsibility for your own spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Mm you know, like even, even being on a, a wonderful college campus with godly people, like you, you got to own your faith. And a lot of people lose their faith in college. I think mine grew stronger than ever. And it was primarily because I was like, I have to accept 100% responsibility for my walk with God. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I had to reset my own rhythms of prayer, my own devotions, which is hard because you know, I was in, I was studying theology, man. So, you know, you're getting Pauline epistles and then you get in doctrine and, you can feel like, no, I talked about God a lot today. Therefore, I'm intimate with him. So own your walk with God. Yeah. It'll bear fruit the rest of your life. The college years are, the, I think, honestly, some of the sweetest years you will ever have. And having those infused with a sense of God's presence and his kindness, that, that's, you will have a well that you will draw on for the rest of your life if you do that right. That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Awesome. John, man, we, we can't say thank you enough for taking time to be with us on the show. And as we always enjoy, yes. Well, as we always say here at the leadership drip, you have a seat at the table. Thanks for coming on, man. No worries. Thank you so much. That was great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Drip. If something from this episode helped you lead better, then share it on your social media and tag us. If we see it, we may share it to our channels. We appreciate you taking time to join us. And remember, you always have a seat at the table.